Inside Books with Breda Brown. Welcome to Inside Books, a programme about the magical world of writing. I'm Breda Brown and in each episode of Inside Books we chat to people associated with the world of books, including well-known authors, publishers, editors, agents, critics, booksellers and more. You'll find Inside Books on SoundCloud or iTunes and our Twitter handle is at InsideBooksIRE where you'll also find lots of other interesting books news. My guest today is Ivan O'Brien, the Managing Director of the O'Brien Press the independent Irish publishing house that covers a range of genres, including fiction, history, biography, politics and children's books. With over 1,000 books published over the past 40 years, their author list includes William Trevor, Brendan Behan, President Mary Robinson, Paddy Cosby, Fergal Quinn, Brendan O'Carroll, Sarah Webb and many others. Ivan, the O'Brien name, I suppose, has been synonymous with publishing in Ireland for the past four decades. Where did it start from? Uh, very unusual origins, I suppose. Uh, it goes deep back into family history. Uh, my grandfather, Thomas O'Brien, was a communist. And when really? you were a communist in Ireland, right, you, couldn't, you couldn't get a job. Um, and so you had to make your own way and you had to basically start a business. So there was a large period where every notable communist in Ireland was a an entrepreneur, a small business person. And Thomas tried a range of different things. Um, a lot of them involving books. He had a mobile library at one point and uh, crossword solvers and all sorts of things. But the thing that really worked for him was a printing company called e O'Brien based on Clare Street. Um, and he knew how to put ink on paper and to bind it and put it in a place. And it, it occurred to him that no one was telling the stories of Ireland's left. And so he started doing it. And he started commissioning people to write books about... Irish left-wing people. And then after a while, it was kind of admitted that this was the thing called publishing. And himself and my father, Michael O'Brien, in 1974, created the O'Brien Press from that. So it did start with a press, a literal printing press. And were they still in Clare Street at that point? Yeah. Right. And when did you move to Rathgar then? Um, Not too long afterwards, because uh, my grandfather died after they'd published only two books. Oh, really? Okay. Um, and so there was the printing company and the nascent publishing company, and they were kind of divvied up between the uh, the siblings. And my father took the publishing company, which had just started, um, and moved it to our house. And what was the very first book then that you published? The first pu- book that was published was Medjool and Darling Dublin by Emma Mokamosh. Right, which a lot of people will, will remember his name. Indeed. And it was written um, behind the bars in Mountjoy Jail. Um, and uh, every now and again, my father would go in with uh, some paper and new pens and give them to Eamon and swap out for the ones that had already been written on. Um, And gradually the book was written in that way over a period, um, pulled together, illustrated with photographs and drawings that my father did. Um, And it was shown to the booksellers who looked at it rather sniffily and said, why would we want a book from Ireland? We get lots of books from England that are great. This will never work. Um, and it was actually refused from Easton because of the Republican leanings of the author. Mm-hmm. They simply wouldn't stock it. Um, but then they came back looking for it when it had already sold 5,000 copies through anyone who would sell it and became a bestseller. So readers were obviously interested in the story. Yeah. And that's something we've discovered again and again. So when we got into children's publishing, I mean, we'd done a few books beforehand, but the first one that really stuck was Under the Hawthorne Tree by Marisha Conlon McKenna in 1990. And again, we were told, all the best children's books in the world come from London. You can't possibly compete with them. That's not going to work. 
But we discovered very, very quickly that a book by an Irish person about an Irish subject featuring Irish people and named at an Irish audience had a market and it was a huge bestseller. Um, and it's still probably the most widely used children's book uh, novel in primary schools in Ireland, North and South. And how much of the business is instinct from a publishing perspective? More than you'd like to admit, I right, suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, we do about 40, 45 new books a year. That's almost one a week. Um, you're that taking, seems like a lot. It feels like a lot most yeah, of the time. Yeah, it does. <laughs> um, you're taking a whole lot of gambles. And so you do look at um, the sales data that you can get, both uh, the Nielsen sales data, so what's actually sold over the till points, the, the data that populates the bestseller list in the newspapers. That's only a part of the market, though. That's the bookshop market and not even all of that. Lots of books sold in other places, as well as your own past history. So what have we published in a similar area? Did that work? What do we think could have made that work better? What price is going to work on that type of product? And also we're looking at the international market because we've had an international focus since very early in in the life of the company. And we will look at every project when it comes along and say, do we think there's a realistic prospect of export sales or of rights? Is someone going to want to read this in German or in Chinese or in Korean? Um, and if we think there's a significant chance of that, then that's put into the mix in terms of our gamble because publishing is is gambling. And But at the end of the day, you also want to make sure the books sell. Uh, enough of them sell. Yeah, that's the thing. So, you know, of the 40 odd books that we produce a year, you know, maybe 10 will make any type of significant profits over their lifetime. Maybe 15 or 20 will lose money and the ones in the middle will just about scrape through. And you're hoping that the balance and the mix over the whole list, over the history of the company, um, will be enough to, to pay the wages at the end of the day and to make sure that the authors get their you know fair cut of, of all the work that they've put in to create their stories. And is that why you do spread across a number of genres? Because again, you are well known for the, the children's publishing side, but you have sports, politics, you've pocket books, you've gift books. So is that the reason why? Yeah, it is. Um, I do think that there are some books which are a pretty reliable bet. Uh, you know, if you're doing a history or a biography, you can usually estimate fairly well what that's going to do. But you're never going to pay all the wages on that. Mm-hmm. Um, and those books have lifetimes. So you do need um, the punt, the gamble, the one that you you do it because your gut tells you that you would want to read that book. And hopefully there are enough other people out there like you or like some member of staff or like someone externally who's pointed you at it because no one person's interests are going to reflect the market. Um, And you say, yeah, that's something that we're going to try. And then you use your best experience and knowledge and you talk to other people, you talk to booksellers and other friends, etc., as to how they think it would meet the market best. And then you just cross your fingers and go for it. (laughs) And hope. And again, I suppose there is also, you need to have an understanding of society and what's going on in society at the moment and maybe what people just literally want to read at this point in time. Totally, yeah. Um, you know, one prime example of that from the last few years would be um, with Sarah Webb when we did Blazing a Trail. Nighttime Stories for Rebel Girls um, had been an international phenomenon um, and in all languages um, and it had really caught a wave because women's stories had not been told to children, boys or girls, in any type of sensible way. Um, this book had gone huge and... Sarah came to us more or less the same time we were thinking to ourselves and thinking there should be an Irish one of these. There's a proven market, but there's a gap. Um, and then we just threw everything at it to produce the best possible book that we could in that area. Spent a lot of money, put a lot of time, 
and it worked and because it was, it was good enough mm. and it won an award and all that jazz. You won't always get the return on the work, but if you see a gap and you see that there should be a book about something, the odds are there'll be a market for that book if you do it well. So how does it work then when it comes to authors? Do you go to them if you feel there is something there or do you wait for people to come to you? There's a big mix um, and it changes from year to year. Um there have been periods where practically everything that we published has been commissioned, which means we approach someone and say, will you write a book about this? Or maybe it's with an existing author who's done a book with us already, be it fiction or nonfiction, and we develop the next project with them. But then we get books in the door, you know, under the Hawthorne tree, came across the door in an envelope. We didn't approach Marita. You know, that genre didn't exist at the time. Um, and so that came across the door. We published it. It worked, but there's a huge mix. And very often we'll meet somebody and they'll come up with an idea. A brand new example. So we, for the last couple of years, have opened the office on Culture Night and we've invite, invited people to pitch children's books at us. Um, and there was one lady, um, Megan Wynn, who came into us two years ago with a young adult novel. Um, it wasn't quite there, but we could see that she was a really good writer. And so we asked, is there anything else that you have? And it turned out that there was um, a, what we call a middle grade book. So a book for kind of 10 to 12 year old children that she'd written called The House on Hawthorne Road. And we read that and we said, OK, the YA novel isn't quite there. This is a lot closer. And uh, it was published last week. Great. Great so result. that's a bit of a mix. So she came to us, but we developed a project with her knowing that there was a talent there, but the thing that we'd initially been shown wasn't quite right. And that wouldn't be unusual. And you mentioned as well that you do go and commission books. So have you, though, approached people and they've said no? Oh, yeah, all the time. Right. Um, you know, we've approached people who said, I've no interest in writing a book at all. And you pursue them then? Uh, only up to a point. Uh, if someone doesn't want to write a book, that's fine. That's their call. If someone doesn't want a book written about them or about their area of interest, that's fine. You know, because for a book to work, everyone has to be aligned. You need the author, the illustrator, if there is one, designer, editor, publisher, publicist, marketeer, bookshops. Everyone has to be aligned because it's a really hard thing to make a book and make it as good as it needs to be to get it into a lot of readers' hands and get them to want to buy it. And if any one part of that is not with everyone else on the same page, pushing in the same direction, it just breaks and it's not good enough and it doesn't work. And um, when it comes then to dealing with the authors, do you prefer to deal with them directly or do you go through agents or is, again, is it a mixture of both? It's a mixture of both. Um, I do think that a lot of agents feel that there's a lot more cachet with going off the island or with going with um, an Irish brand of a conglomerate. Um, and is that difficult then because you are competing with each other in that sense? Or do does the author feel that those other businesses can offer more maybe? Maybe they do. And maybe in some cases that's true. I know in some cases it's definitely not. I know I've um, friends of mine who've been published by international houses who felt neglected. Um, whereas if you're with a relatively small company, um, of course, you're a bigger fish in our smaller pond. We're going to feel more passionate or be able to give more time and more energy and more focus to your book. Um, and speaking for O'Brien Press... We do a pretty good job internationally as well. So it's not like you're just saying it's Island of Ireland and nothing else. But, you know, perceptions are there and we have to do what we can to, to push those doors and make sure that people realise what you get from each different publisher. We all have different offers. We all have different passions and interests. There are really good books that maybe we wouldn't be the best publisher for. And that's fine, too. 
And again, you'll have case studies at this point of, of, of work that has worked, you know, in that sense, from, from the book's perspective, that you can say to new authors uh, or potential authors that you are trying to get on board that we, we have a track record. Absolutely. And, you know, when people come to me and ask, how do I get published? Which publisher should I go to? The advice I nearly always give them is go into a bookshop, look on a shelf, look at the shelf that you think your book should be on, look at the books that are on that shelf at the moment, they're the publishers you should be talking to um, because they're the people who work in your area and produce something that interests you and that gets you excited. And, you know, hopefully there are enough of our books on enough shelves that, that people see us. And yeah, that does happen. People say, I saw you did Blazing a Trail, say. That's just such an amazing project. I, I feel I need to be with the publisher who did that because you did that justice. And so really your books are your salespeople in that regard. And again, if you do a bad book, that's marks against you. Absolutely, no doubt. Um, and you, as you said, you get sent submissions. So how many a year would come in the door? Oh, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds. Really? Yeah, vast numbers. And you go through them all? Yeah, we look at them all. Um, so a lot of publishers would have um, a rule where they, they won't accept anything unsolicited. They'll only accept things from agents. We don't do that. Anyone can send anything to us anytime. I can't promise we'll get back to you in five days or anything like right, that. It yeah. does take time. There is a queue. Um, but yes, we do look at everything, which is not to say we read everything from cover to cover. And how much of it would you read? Um, it depends. A page you know, it could be, or it could be 10 pages. If it's yeah, it could be. You know, if if the cover letter is written in really bad English, full of spelling errors and doesn't flow, the chances are the book's not going to either. So you don't even get to so the So you might not even get to the book, um, but usually you would, you would. Um, you know, but you read one book, one page or two pages or five pages. And if you still want to keep reading, then you keep reading. And there's a reason for that. And, you know, particularly in fiction, for example, a lot of authors make the mistake of doing their world building in the first 20 or 30 or 40 pages and filling you in on all of the backstory, which tends to be really boring. So if you can see it, this person can write, but the stuff that I'm currently reading is a little bit dry. I'm waiting to get to the story. You read to the point that the story starts and see is the story good as well as the writing good. But if you're reading a bit of world building and the writing isn't good either, you're not going to go any further. And generally out of those hundreds and hundreds that you get, I mean, what is the quality like? A lot of it's not publishable. Right. Not even remotely publishable. And so why do people send them in then if, if that's the case? They obviously feel in their head it is ready for publication. It's really hard to be any type of objective judge of your own writing. And that's true of all of us. Yeah. Um, I mean, I've written things and then look back at it a week later and said, who wrote that muck? You know, you just, you can't. <laughs> I think we've all done that. You can't judge it yourself. And I've had friends who are really good readers and have really good taste in writing. And they've written stuff themselves. And you're trying to find the way to say that's really bad without falling out with your friend. It's not always the case, but it's really hard to be a judge of your own stuff. Also, I think the people who people get to read their stuff first tend to be friends and relatives. Mm. And the friends and relatives will always give them a pass and always give them the best possible feedback. So I think people will tend to get more positive feedback than maybe the writing justifies in a lot of cases. And when it comes to giving that feedback then, do you give feedback to every submission or do you select or how does that work? Uh, No, is the answer. We don't. Um, We give um, feedback where we think there's significant potential. Uh, We used to give a lot more feedback, actually. Um, And we do develop feedback ourselves. You know, we do 
correspond internally on why we think something works or doesn't. And very often we bat it back at the end. But what we've found over the years is that if you give that feedback to the author, then very often you get almost exactly the same manuscript resubmitted six months later with, as they see it, the issues resolved. Right. Usually they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, or you end up in a long conversation or a debate where they will argue with you about the quality of the writing. And that is not doing anyone any favours. So we've just learned lessons over the years that the best thing to do if there's no route to a book working that you can realistically see is to just say sorry and keep it very plain and businesslike without much detail. And again, interesting you touch on it there. I mean, that relationship between the publisher and the author It's so important and it has to work and there has to be trust there on both sides. To get the best possible book, yeah. And there's nothing more distressing than even with a a book that we've published where we've ended up not on the same page as the author. Very often happens, particularly in fiction, where you're saying the book's very good until the last 20 pages. The ending is wrong. You know, it needs to change. And how do they take that? And or sometimes they'll engage with it and they'll have the discussion and maybe they'll change it. or or develop some other part to justify the original ending they had or whatever. Um, but when you say that to an author and they bat it back and then you read the first review that says it was very good until the last 20 pages, the ending was wrong. It's so frustrating. Mm-hmm. So it works best when the author realises that the editor is on their side is not the enemy. The, the editor and the designer and the illustrator and everyone else who's part of the conversation wants the best possible book, just like the author does. We're all on the same team. Um, And when you can keep relations positive, and it's hard because you are criticising their work at the end of the day. You're saying, you've given us this thing that you think is perfect and we think it needs to change. And that's a hard conversation for any of us to have. But if they can see where that's coming from and the positive angle that we all want to take on it, and you end up with the best possible book, then you've the best possible chances of winning. In our experience, where that relationship breaks down even a bit, the book tends to end up being compromised and tends not to be as good as it should be, which is really sad for all concerned. And has there ever been a situation, I'm just intrigued as to where you have progressed quite down far the the path, um, but it hasn't worked out and you've had to say goodbye before the book is published? Um, We have, not on those grounds though. There have tended to be other reasons like... um, if it's a book relating to current affairs and say the subject that it's about stalls for several years, say for legal reasons or something like that. Um, And then, you know, the author says, right, let's pick up where we went off and we went actually, subject is kind of dead. Or it, it tends to be more in those circumstances, really. I can't think of any instances where you know, relations broke down and we decided we couldn't work together and the ball fell, mm-hmm. the, the the book fell on the floor. I don't think that's ever happened. I can see how it could. Um, and sometimes in retrospect, um, we might say, look, there were red flags quite early on that this book was going to be a problem. And we know that the end result is a camel. It's designed by committee. There's no one vision behind it. It's not working and it failed. Well, there's a surprise. Could we not have called it a year ago? But when you're in the middle of it and everyone is pushing positively towards trying to get the best possible thing, it's very hard to make that call. And how firm do you have to be with authors about deadlines? Not unreasonably firm. Um, books take a long time to develop um, and they're they're hard to make. And you do need to give everyone a fair crack at their stage in the process. Um, but if you try to force work out of an author before it's ready, 
it's not going to be good enough. And do you develop the deadline together then? Yeah. Right. Yeah, you do. I mean, one great example of it is is The Bloodied Field, um, which went on to be a huge bestseller. So we had that sketched in for publication in one autumn and it came to August, which is so late in the year to be making the decision. The editor just said, it's not ready. We could force it out, but it won't be right. We're going to have to wait a year. And I remember I protested. I said, look, you've told us up to now it'll make it. And now it's not going to make it. How can we pull it from our list? We need the turnover, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All the arguments that you make. Um, but she was absolutely right. It needed the extra time. It needed the extra year. And when it came out the following autumn and the first reviews hit, we could not keep it on the shelves. And that was a case where word of mouth, due to the sheer quality of the work, made the difference. So it wasn't people buying it on the subject. It was people buying it because they'd heard other people say it was brilliant. And if you squeezed a book out too fast or if the relationships all the way haven't worked, that's not going to happen and you're not going to get the big bestseller. So sometimes you've got to just take a step back. And go with, the, go with the flow. And then on the children's side as well, I mean, it really is a skill to try and write for a certain age group. Um, how do you work with your authors on that? Yeah, I, there is a, a common misperception that writing for children is easy. People say well, people just see a couple of words on a page and an illustration and off you go. Yeah. <laughs> it's not um, that easy, you're telling me. Not even remote. I think it was Beckett who once wrote a letter to someone saying, I'm sorry, the letter is so long. I didn't have time to write a short one. It's very, very hard to write short. And children are really harsh critics. Uh, if they don't like something, they just put it down. As an adult, we will plough on. I will read 50 or 100 pages of a book because my friend has told me it's good, even if I hate it, because I'm use, waiting to get to the good book. Do you use focus groups with kids? Not focus groups as such, uh, but yeah, guinea pigs for sure. So my kids are just 13 now, but when they were 8, 9, 10, 11, boy, oh boy, were they sampling everything. Um, so you could see their feedback and, you know, you know what they like to read and how they like to read and you take the feedback and you take it seriously. And if something isn't engaging them, you want to know why. Um, and yeah, we have other readers who we would try stuff out on. And we've got a moderately good instinct for what works at this stage. We've produced many, many, many children's books. But yeah, you still do need real readers at that age level to see because there are so many things that can be wrong. Um, and sometimes we still make crazy errors in terms of, you know, names or places or times in history or just language structure or jokes that require too much knowledge to really get that type of thing. It's so easy to get it wrong. Um, but yeah, writing for kids is hard. It's really, really hard. And on the illustration side, again, obviously, they're hugely important for, for children's books. So how do you go about finding the right illustrator for a particular author for a particular book? Well, we have an amazing designer in O'Brien Press, Emma Byrne. Um, who also commissions pretty much all of the art. Um, and she keeps her eyes on the screen and her ears to the ground um, to find new illustrators coming up and finding new styles. And we give a lot of high profile uh, illustrators their first shot, their first commission. Um, so we find a lot of people very early. Um, and we just take the risk. You know, so we will typically at, at a covers meeting, it tends to be the cover that you start with, though an illustrated book is broadly the same. Emma will bring maybe three or four or five illustrators who she thinks might be appropriate for the job. And we'll look at their um, their portfolios. They're all online these days, of course, which makes it good and easy. And so you can see this. Does this person have just one style or do they have 10 styles? And which one do we think would work best for this project? Um, quite often we'll actually commission two illustrators 
to do a sample. Mm, and see what they come up with. And see what they come up with. Yeah, two who we think might work in the space and we'd say, you know, either give us a cover rough or give us a, a sample illustration for inside. And obviously there'll be a fee uh, for the one who doesn't get the job. Right. Um, and we let them know up front, this is what we're doing. It's competitive. Um, or if it's just one person, we'll do the same thing, you know, because you, it might not work. They'll come up with something or maybe it doesn't work for them or it doesn't work for us. But so there are a couple of stages. Um, and we'll always get um, some sketches, some pencil roughs um, before we go anywhere near colour. Um, and it goes through four or five or six iterations before you end up with the, the final artwork. But it's a big punt because particularly with covers, everyone judges a book by its cover. Absolutely. And if you and put the wrong illustration on, you're gone. And this is it. I was going to say how important are book covers, you know, because people do nearly read with their eyes when they go into the bookshop they will be a magpie and pick the one that looks the best without doubt I mean the hardest meetings in any publishing company anywhere are the covers meetings because everyone has a different vision um, and what resonates with one person will not resonate with another aesthetic is extremely personal at the end of the day and particularly with kids books you constantly have to say well we're a bunch of big people in this room and this book is for little people but you have to take into account the fact that most books for little people are bought by big people. Children don't buy their own books. They're bought by their, their father, their mother, their granny, their aunt, or recommended by a teacher or something. So you have to find something that will appeal both to the adult purchaser, but also to the child reader and not be off-putting for either. And that, that can be a real challenge. Sometimes you've got something that you know will be superb for the child, but the adult won't touch it. And in terms of marketing a book then as well, again, it's a huge, important part of the process. So how do you go about getting it out there? Well, again, we've got a great team in-house. Um, one thing about O'Brien Press, we're an in-house company. We do pretty much everything ourselves, which you know brings its own challenges. But it means that everyone who's involved in working on our books is really passionately engaged in making sure that they succeed. So that, that's hugely important. Uh, Ruth Hennigan runs our publicity and marketing. and She's been with us for quite some time now um, and is hugely experienced um, and it's largely a case of just pressing every single button you know if you go back 10 or 15 years ago you had to try to get the major radio programs the, the key tv programs in the area that you're in you chase the um the national press and then regional in ireland regional is so important um regional print media regional radio and so you chase those we still do all of that but now so much of it's digital so, you know, we'd have cover reveals a few months before publication on Twitter and Instagram. We try to encourage our authors who are so inclined, and they aren't all, but the ones who are, to mention the book, talk up the book, say what they're doing to all of their friends on social media to try to, to get excitement and interest in a book long before publication. Like we've got a, a book coming out next spring, a, a young adult book called Queen of Coin and Whisper. That has been all over Twitter for the last couple of months. And it was featured at the uh, CBI conference just last week. Um, and so we want people to be desperate for that book when it arrives. For us, that's a slightly extreme example, but it's it's pretty much what we do across the board. You want every possible channel for every possible book. And as you say, just getting that talkability as early as you possibly, as you possibly can. So what about book reviews then? What's your view? They're still important but they're not as important as they used to be. And I think the form that book reviews take have changed hugely. So a book review in a respected print media, yeah, that's great. You know, you'll mention that to everyone else as a reason why maybe you should take the book seriously. How much it works directly with the reader, I'm not sure. And how many people see those reviews in their original form, 
it's hard to say. Um, a huge amount is online now. I was going to say, and do you think it is more about the, oh, the online yeah. side? Yeah, hugely. Um, for all that, you know, like I say, regional radio and that particularly in Ireland is hugely important. And we have some fantastic book champions. I don't think people in Ireland realise how lucky we are to have, you know, the likes of Ryan Tuberty and Rick O'Shea and all the others, um, Sinead, etc., just pushing books all the time. Because if you look in other countries, particularly in Britain, they just don't have that and they can't rely on that on the major mass media. Um, whereas we can, we still have arts shows. OK, not as many as we'd like and maybe not exactly the way that we'd like, but they're there, they're present and they're part of the week. Um, you know, we've got an hour of culture programming between seven and eight on RTE, five nights a week on RTE Radio 1. That's amazing. Absolutely. And as you say, when somebody like Pat Kenny or Ryan Tuberty mentions a book, we hear from booksellers that people come in asking for that title. So it just goes to show how, how powerful it is. And on that, then your relationship with bookshops and booksellers, that has to be important too. It's hugely important. Yeah. And again, we're very lucky. The quality of booksellers that we have in Ireland is really, really high. There are a lot of um, owner-run businesses, um, but even the chains are run by people who are really passionate about books. They love them and they've got huge experiences and their catalogue brains are quite scary, really stunning. Just they can remember every book, what it looked like, how it worked and why your one either is good enough to be in that space or not. And so we consult with them very widely. Um, they will see our books a long time ahead of publication. We'll run potential covers by them. Often, you know, three or four different covers say, which one do you think is going to work best? And we take that feedback very, very seriously. Um, and then we present all our books to them maybe six months ahead of publication. And again, if they feed back, that's something, you know, should be a hardback, not a paperback, or it's too expensive, or that cover is just not going to work, or maybe you're aiming it at the wrong audience. Their knowledge and experience, you know, we've done 2,000 books or thereabouts in the history of the company. They've sold 100,000 books. So and, we'll take their knowledge. And they're at the front line. Do so they know what the customers want? Yeah. And actually, I worked a day in a bookshop there a couple of years ago, which was really instructive. Right, really interesting. Um, great fun. Was um, it what you expected? In many ways, yeah. In many ways, no. I didn't realise just quite how few staff there are in bookshops. You know, right. they run a tight ship as well. Um, you know, for all that we, some people might give out about the margin they take, you know, they've got expensive rents to, to cover and they've got uh, wages to pay um, and complex businesses to run. And they work so hard. Um, and they're constantly using their expertise to point so many people from so many different strands of life in the direction of the book that they didn't know they wanted until now, um, that it's really great. And yeah, we get to know them personally. Most people in the book trade are, are lifers. They stay a long time. They might leave one company, but they tend to pop up in another one soon enough. Um, and so you build up a lot of personal relationships, which we draw on on all sides. It's in their interest for us to do well. It's in our interest for them to do well. So it's an extremely collaborative industry. And how do you feel the industry, the publishing industry in Ireland is performing at the moment? I think if you look at the uh, the shortlists and the winners list from the Irish Book Awards last year, um, you'd say exceptionally well. Um, you know, most of the awards went to publishers based on the island of Ireland, um, whereas in previous years, maybe more went abroad. Um, and if you look at the bestsellers list year round, there are good quality Irish published books um, all the time present there. And I think it's important to point out that an Irish authored book and an Irish authored and Irish published book 
are are different things because while authors are obviously at the heart of the industry, they're the name on the product. They're the person out there pushing their stories. The people that help shape that um, are an important part of the picture too. And the presence of an actual industry in Ireland, a full ecosystem, people who will edit a book coming from and sitting in the same culture as the person who wrote it and a good chunk of the people who are going to read it can't be overestimated. It's really, really important that we keep those skills on the island and that the publishing industry continues to thrive because it's tough. We're right beside London, which is the second biggest publishing hub in the world, and they're really very good at what they do. And so we have to produce books that are every bit as good at competitive prices, promoted just as well, um, for us to survive. And thankfully, enough of us do that enough of the time that the industry's doing pretty well. And um, before I let you go, I have to ask the question, do you write yourself? Uh, I do, but not in an author kind of way. Um, I'm, you know, I'm I'm competent with words. I'll give a speech at the drop of a hat in front of a bunch of people. Fine, that doesn't bother me in the slightest. But I think to be an author, you have to need to be an author. You have to really have something that you have to put on the page because it's really, really hard. It takes a lot of time. The rewards are scant. Um, and the pressure is very high and I don't have that pressing need inside me to do it. So I've got the sense not to try. If at some point in the future I feel a need to, then yeah, I'll leap in and I'd be confident enough in my own skills and abilities to give it an actual shot. But but no, that's not me. Well, you'll have the publishing house sorted anyway, which would be great. That'll make it an awful lot easier. Ivan O'Brien, thank you so much for joining us today on Inside Books. The next episode of Inside Books will be out soon. Just keep an eye on our Twitter feed for details. The handle is at Inside Books, I-R-E. And if you want to hear other episodes, just search for us on SoundCloud or iTunes. And don't forget to leave us a rating or review. I'm Breda Brown. Until next time, keep reading. Inside Books is a unique media production. 